I'd like to invite any children who'd like to go to Children's Chapel to go with Beth over here to the side chapel at this time. Please join me in a spirit of prayer. Gracious God, giver of every good gift, we give you thanks for the gift of a living faith within us. We give you thanks for the gift of the Holy Spirit living within us. We ask you through your word and your sacrament and the fellowship of your body to rekindle our faith so we may live from your power, your love, and not ours alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Now, many of you do not know that I was raised up as a child as a Girl Scout. Perhaps this led to some confusion because I was also a Boy Scout. But in our household, my dad worked two jobs. He wasn't home much. So when summer came, I went to Girl Scout camp. I went to Girl Scout camp with my mom and my two sisters, and it was wonderful. It was a blast. It's great to be the only boy at Girl Scout camp. My favorite part about Girl Scout camp was the ecology hut, the ecology shack, so to speak. There's this wonderful woman who ran this little cabin full of specimens and wonders from nature. They're at Camp Agnes DeWitt in the Sourland Mountains of New Jersey on Zion Road. She collected wonderful things for us to study in the forest. And one of the ways she got us fascinated by nature is she had this wonderful box. The box was covered on the top by thick black felt, had a slit down the middle. You couldn't see inside. And every day she'd invite a brave soul to reach in the box where she had put something fascinating for us to identify by touching and not sight. So one day it could have been a shell of a box turtle. The other day it could have been a milkweed pod, all raspy and spiky. Another day it could have been an antler from a deer or a small skeleton of a woodland creature, or once even a squirrel's tail. And she knew how to grow our fascination. She would take us on hikes in the stream bed of the red shale stream that moved through the camp, and we would turn over stones and discover crayfish and try to catch them as they skittered away. We would find tadpoles and guppies, we would be fascinated and have our hikes with our heads down looking for what wonders we would find. So I am so grateful for Mrs. Wilson. She is, for me, an ancestor. She is an ancestor of my fundamental orientation and core commitments to God's beloved world, to this beloved planet we share. She is an ancestor of my commitment to environmentalism, my core orientation to conservation. Walking in the woods with joy, that comes from Mrs. Wilson. So take a moment, just a moment, 
and identify some of your ancestors in your heart. Who are your ancestors who gave you some of your primary orientation in life, some of your core concerns? Was it a teacher, an uncle, a family member, a mentor, a godparent? Who formed your soul? Who was your Eunice? Who was your Lois? Like Eunice and Lois, all of us have some people in our life who are our ancestors. Our ancestors who helped us come to faith. Who helped us grow a sense of God's goodness. A sense that God was trustworthy and true. And someone we wanted to follow. We can also name those ancestors of our coming to faith. Mine are aunts and uncles and cousins. Uncle Bill, a World War II veteran. A real, actual West Texas cowboy. Gentle, kind, quiet, full of integrity and dignity. Careful in his words, careful in his choices, unfailingly kind. To this day, Uncle Bill is my image of a man of faith, someone I could aspire to be. He is a Eunice to me. He is a Lois for me. His wife, Aunt Thala, and my aunts all had bizarre names, by the way, Thala, Albertina, and Meredi. Thala was another Eunice for me. Unfailingly, when we met Aunt Thela, she would get down on our level, way down with all the little cousins, and she would look you in the eye and she'd say, you are loved. You are precious. You are special. In her wonderful accent from the cotton fields, the patent panhandle of Texas, she'd say, oh, my dear Jarrett, you are spatial. You are loved. You are precious. And my nickname for her was Angel. Because she brought the good news to me from the earliest age. She brought to me exactly what my soul needed to hear. The gospel message of love. God's unconditional love. And I can go on. Their, their child, Clay, now a PhD in medieval Spanish literature, who has a genuine and beautiful, heartfelt love of Jesus, quiet and sincere, full of love. Their daughter, Suzanne, one of my closest cousin friends, who has a fierce and ferocious prophetic faith. She's the Habakkuk of our family. She is not going to settle for a world less than what God dreams of for us. She's not going to be easy in accepting of a world fallen short of God's justice. And she's on the street marching and working and protesting all over the world for God's dream for humanity. All these flavors come together and create a chorus of Eunices and Loises. 
who have nurtured my faith and sustain my faith. Those who have died, they sustain my faith from the communion of saints. Those who are still with me sustain my faith as part of my life. So who is your Eunice? Who is your Lois? Think for a minute, who is in that chorus of personal saints who feed and sustain you in faith? Just take a moment with that. Give thanks for them. Be full of gratitude for them. And then ask yourself, who are you an ancestor to? Who are you an ancestor to? Who will tell their story of coming to faith and name you as a Eunice or a Lois? Who are you passing on this good news to? Helping them know that they are precious and beloved and in an unbreakable relationship with God that changes everything. Who is your Timothy? Now we see in this letter to Timothy that Timothy is struggling with this faith he has received from Eunice and Lois. And one of the fun disputes about this passage is because it's from early in the church, Eunice and Lois might not even be followers of Jesus. They might be Timothy's Jewish forebears. And when the author talks about his forebears, they also may be followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in that is good news itself. But Timothy is struggling. Timothy is struggling with the shame, the shame of being a person of faith. It's hard. He's known as a follower of this guy named Paul. And this guy named Paul is in jail. He's a jailbird. That doesn't look so good for the faith he has. He's also a follower of this guy named Jesus who died at the hand of the Romans on the cross. A shameful death, mocked, reviled, naked, exposed, powerless, killed by the Roman authorities as a threat to order and rule of law. So here's poor Timothy, now publicly identified with a jailbird and one who was crucified. And he's feeling some shame and embarrassment about this faith that is in him, this faith that is alive in him. He's nervous. He's lost his nerve. So the author is calling in Eunice and Lois and Paul and all these people to prop him up, encourage him. Now we can identify with Timothy because many of us have at times been ashamed to be people of faith. I'm not saying anything radical there. We have been ashamed of our faith or we've acted like we're ashamed of our faith. The other day at worship together, as we were gathering around the baptismal font, a little boy named Braden tugged on my robe. Father Jarrett, Father Jarrett, we talk about Jesus at home. I said, good for you, Braden. That's the best news I've heard today. 
That's where the formation starts. But how often do we call him Lord and Lord on Sunday and suddenly he's just completely missing from our conversation all week long? Lord, Lord. Well, I'm not going to mention him in polite company. We have internalized some cultural shame about our faith. Some for good reasons, because the church has a pretty horrible track record on many things. We have been terrible on race and slavery and sexuality and on and on and on. So maybe there's some good shame in there. Like we're embarrassed for the track record we're identified with. And that's okay, because we can turn that into humility and repentance. We can say, yeah, I, I follow Jesus, and I have also left all that behind. You can do both. So that's one form of shame. The other form of shame is just maybe this embarrassment that what we believe seems less than plausible in this cultural moment we're in. It's a declining thing we're in. Maybe it doesn't reach the standards of knowledge and plausibility of the larger world. And so we're ashamed to be too decisive about it, too sure of it, too open about it. We're a little reticent to let it shape our lives. We're a little reluctant and avoidant to let it speak too loudly through us. So we can join Timothy in that uneasy shame we might feel on the faith. Yet here is the third thing I want to say about that. I think sometimes we're afraid to identify with the faith because it is actually so powerful in us, we're afraid of it. We're afraid of where it might actually lead us. We're afraid of where it might take us. This mustard seed of faith God lodging God's power in us can move that mulberry tree. It can move that mountain. And that mulberry tree in that mountain, they are us. I am the mulberry tree. I am the mountain that must be moved. It's me in my inertia, in my sin, in my rootedness, in destructiveness and toxicity, hard to say, toxicity that can be moved by my faith, but maybe I don't really want it to. Maybe I'm afraid to have my mulberry tree thrown in the sea. Maybe I'm scared of having my mountain moved because then who will I be? Who will I be? Now, there's this whole other thing about mulberry trees I could get into because they are horrible trees. No one loves a mulberry tree except for birds. Birds, what's that? Silkworms love them and birds. And how do mulberry trees get around? Through birds. <laughs> they, eat the, they eat the berry and then they leave the seeds somewhere else to grow, and it's a messy, nasty tree with lots of bees around it. Well, this mulberry tree is this deeply rooted thing in us that gets moved by our faith. And our faith is this power of God in us. It's not anything we get to by our willpower. It's not anything we get through our mind power. It's not anything we get through our most loving self. 
It's a gift of God's power in us, reforming us, renewing us, giving us the gifts of rebirth, the gifts of the Holy Spirit living in us. And this is the good news of faith, is this comes as a gift. It comes through grace. And if we consent, and if we respond, it has God's power in us to uproot that tree, move that mountain. And when we acknowledge the power, that's when we can become a Lois or a Eunice to that next generation who needs us to see a life turn towards God, a life entrusting our life to God, a life turning towards God in dependence on God, finding ourselves made whole and new in God's grace. Amen.